Well, we begin our second message in our summer series, uh, the sermon following the greatest message ever delivered to mankind, the most influential and, and uh, uh, I would say most uh, uh, consequential message ever preached, the Sermon on the Mount that Jesus gave in the beginning of his ministry. And last week we gave some context to that. If you missed that message, I encourage you to go onto our website at park.church and uh, get to listen to that and uh, to have that full context to understand kind of the what Jesus was beginning to do on that, but uh, we're here today, we're going to be going in as we go through the summer, uh, just little sections of it as Jesus kind of goes through that particular message and what he's talking about. And my clicker's not going to work today, so I'm going to have you guys just forward that slide because, you know, it's just going to be one of those days. Um, and uh, so today we're going to be going in uh, at Matthew 5.13, kind of um, going past the Beatitudes as Jesus gives us really that bracket, what's uh, inside of the kingdom, what kind of kingdom is he bringing, and little different than what the world had expected. And, uh, and I think we're going to find that this particular passage, all of it, very relevant. But, um, but I, you know, thinking about our world, and one of the reasons that I, I don't go onto the news or media anymore is it just makes me angry because there's a lot of injustice in this world. And uh, we see this uh, moral slide amongst the Western world, Western culture, that it's, uh, it grieves me uh, deeply. And, and it should grieve all of us, right, because it hurts real people. And really, when you look back to uh, sociologically, where did this kind of begin? Uh, really, in the 1800s, where it began with a, uh, an idea that came out of some of these theological schools, mostly in Germany, but uh, this idea that uh, God didn't really mean what he said. Like, we can't really trust the Bible to be what it was written. It's, uh, we can maybe take it with a grain of salt, ironically enough. And... Um, and that began to catch on in our society that there was no longer a standard of truth. And that's really what scripture means, the canon. It's, it means a standard. It lets us know what truth actually is. We measure our lives by its, uh, its absolute truth. And when that was taken away, when we lost that measure as society, we slid into what's known as relativism. And that's where our culture is today. And it's really kind of destroyed us as people. Uh, we have uh, gone so far and uh, in Scripture, stuff that I would never have thought of happening, but uh, Scripture warned us early on, uh, woe to those, this is Isaiah, that call good evil and evil good. They call light dark and dark light. They call sweet uh, uh, sour, sour sweet, right? Um, we, we are there in our world that there is no standard. There is no right and wrong. There is your truth, and then somebody else has their own truth. We are relativistic at a very core level in people, a and to the point of not just in individual beliefs, the invisible things that we hold to, but actually very physical, obvious things uh, as culture we can't even agree upon. Uh, and it's, it's destroying us. And so what happens is if people, once we've become so relativistic that there is no standard, we become untethered. It's like we are people out in the middle of the ocean with no, no land on the horizon. We don't even know what direction to swim towards. There's no longer any goalposts for life because we can't even agree on what is good or what is evil. What is right or what is wrong, what is worthy or what is not worthy. And so as a society, we're just going all about in crazy different directions, just trying to find some sense of meaning, and many have lost any sense of meaning. There's no purpose to life because we're told we're just cosmic accidents anyway. At best, maybe we believe that there is a God, but we can't tell what God wants from us because we don't believe what he told us. And so as people... Uh, as a society, there is a sense of purposelessness. There's no security either. Think of the anxiety levels that our society deals with. These are not small things that just, you know, that 
don't really matter. Real people that we really know are struggling with great levels of anxiety and depression and, and purposelessness and emptiness. There is a void in the soul of our culture that is a, a, a mauling gape that just sucks people into it alive and destroys us. And it's scary. And we find that what happens when people come to these moments in history, this is not the first time, by the way, that humans have done this to ourselves. Many times throughout time we've done this. But we turn to things to try to find a sense of purpose or meaning or belonging. We try to find it elsewhere. And throughout history, what has typically arisen out of moments like this are totalitarian states. As, as people come together and try to find some sense of purpose or meaning, something that's going to bring us together that gives us this, we, we pick something that's going to give us those goalposts. And so uh, typically in humanity, that's what we've done. We've created these states. You know, we, we've had, uh, think about the fascists who came together and said, well, the, the, the church can't be all as it, but the, but the, the government is going to be like God. It's going to be the totalitarian thing. Everything is going to be owned by the government. The government's going to tell you what to believe, what to think, what's right, what's wrong. It's going to tell you how life is supposed to go. It's all about the government, right? Or uh, we, we think the Nazis who came together and said, no, 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 no. It's, it's really all about a race. It's all about uh, who, you know, uh, this Darwinist idea that there's going to be a master class at the survival of the fittest and there is particular uh, people that are going to be the great, and that's the greatest good. And so, the, so that's what's going to, everything's going to surround around this. Like our entire belief system, our ethics, our morals, our economy, everything's going to surround this. And, and therefore, that's where we're going to find purpose and meaning. Or the communists who came together at the very same thing and said, no, 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 it's going to be about the proletariat. It's about the, you know, with this, this centralized people is going to represent everybody else, and it's going to be about that. And that's where we're going to find whatever the proletariat says is, is what's good or what is right or what is meaningful. They're going to give meaning and life, and everything in life is going to fall inside of that framework. And we find ourselves over and over and over in history, those are just the ones in this last century, that we find ourselves falling into totalitarianism by some type of, of minor ideology. And what happens every time is the very thing that we were trying to move away from, this hopelessness, this fear, this gaping maw of purpose or meaning. It, it becomes the reality of everyone that's underneath that system. There, there's... Nothing that humans can create that can give us a standard of truth. So as Americans, this week we celebrate the fact that we are not living under totalitarian state, right? That's what we, we have. We rebelled against that. We revolted. We have our freedom. And yet in that freedom, look what we have done. We had a moment in, as, as Americans became ascendant. And what did we try to export to the world? the American way of life, as if that was the, the, the pinnacle of all things instead of the kingdom of God. And the kingdom of God is really what is needed, and that's what Jesus declares to us in this wonderful sermon. The whole thing is a declaration of God's kingdom, the only true totalitarian state that can feed our soul. It's the only one because Jesus is holy. God is holy. He's not like the state. He's bigger than our biology. He's bigger than our collective understanding of what we can do together. That he is actually God. He is reality beyond reality. 
He's what the truth reflects. And therefore, in his governance, there is a new way of life that he offers to us. One that is so much more than just a politic of how we understand people are to operate, but gives us an ethic of of what is right and what is wrong. It gives us a purpose of how we're supposed to live and goalposts to shoot for as it gives us something to, to evaluate our lives by. And so in the Sermon on the Mount, this is exactly what we find is a new type of declaration. The very declaration that our world and our culture so badly needs and craves. So if you have your Bibles, go to the next slide. We're going to turn to Matthew 5.13, right? And in, in before this, for those of you who missed, just a quick summary, that in the Beatitudes, we found three keys of understanding God's kingdom. And we recognize that those three things, as we found in there, that really you're not going to understand the rest of the Sermon on the Mount unless you get these. The first one is that God's kingdom is personal before it's political, or in other ways, personal before it becomes public, right? That everyone was expecting the Messiah to come to have a political uh, public move, and that would influence people who they were and what they believed personally. But Jesus came and, and started with the Beatitudes and said, no, it starts here. And, and until we have a change of the heart, there's going to be no change in the nation. There's going to be no change in the world. The second thing is that God's kingdom requires faith and faithfulness. It's not going to make sense to you. You're going to have to trust in something bigger than yourself, and you're going to have to stick to it. It's not just believing it. It's actually following what he says, that, that there is no access or to the kingdom of God, and there is, there is no uh, expansion of God's kingdom without faith and without faithfulness. It's bigger than we are and requires everything we have. The third thing is that God's kingdom is worth it. He calls us to hard things, stepping out onto uh, stuff that, and to believe what is right and wrong beyond our understanding of what we would say right and wrong is, to do what's right in God's eyes, not in what's right in our own eyes, to do what, what uh, God says is, is morally right or what is good or is worthy versus what my heart would tell me is morally right, morally good, or worthy. What, you know, that takes a diff- that's a hard step, and there are consequences to that, but it's worth it. It's everything that the heart and the spirit and the soul have always longed for and more. It is the only kingdom that's able to provide everything that we were meant for. It resonates rightly, and so it is worth every sacrifice. So today, as we continue that, we'll find that as he gives us those three kingdoms, he goes on to talk about two requirements of the kingdom, two requirements to make God's kingdom revolution successful. So let's go to the next passage. It's going to be uh, right here, and it says here, you are the salt of the earth, but if salt loses its saltiness, how can it be made salty again? It is no longer good for anything except for to be thrown out and trampled underfoot. And you are the light of the world. A town built on a hill cannot be hidden. Neither do people light a lamp and put it under a bowl. Instead, they put it on a stand, and it gives light to everyone in the house. And in the same way, let your light shine before others, that they may see your good deeds and glorify your Father in heaven. Now in that, Jesus talks about some important things. The first one, he says, you. Who's the you? Is it everybody? No. But he was talking to actual specific people, and this applies to specific people. Who are the you? Well, they are the followers of Jesus. They're the ones who came up onto the hill, who were expecting the Messiah, wanted to be part of his kingdom. They were his disciples, the one that he was teaching. These are the followers of God's kingdom. That's the you. And for those who are in God's kingdom, there are two attributes and things that he tells us that we are. He says that you are, and the first thing is that you are. It's not that you will be, not that you should attain to be. And remember, this is at the very beginning of as his kingdom began. He didn't say, hey, all of you that are here, you will be. 
the, the light of the world. You're going to be the salt of the earth. No, no. He said, you are. It's a present state of reality, something that was bequeathed to them, that God created them. It's just who they are. And those two things that we need to be, the next slide, it's very simple, the salt of the earth, and you are also, and that's well, the first one, right? We have to be the salt of the earth. Not that you might be the salt of the earth. If you are God's follower, if you are in his kingdom, if you are under his amazing headship, if you are a, a, a believer in Jesus, you are the salt of the earth. And I think that he chose salt specifically for a couple of reasons, right? Salt is a unique kind of thing. It's from the earth. It is uh, you know, part of the earth, which we are. Like if you are a, a child of God, it's not like all of a sudden you walk around with a halo and wings, right? It's not like we float around all over the place and all of a sudden I'm just a heavenly being. No, you, we're, we're part of this earth. Salt's part of this earth, but it's unique. Salt has unique properties that make it different than other things, and it's very, very useful, and it's very, very precious, right? They used to, someone say, you're worth your, weight, you're worth your salt. You know, that's what the Roman soldiers would be paid in. It was a valuable substance. It's something that, that was useful and good. And God said, if you are his, if you're in his kingdom, that's like you. And salt has purposes. It sanitizes. One of the things it does, if you have a wound, you'd put salt in it. Now, now we wouldn't do that because we've got less painful things, but sure it's better to have salt in a wound than to die from gangrene, right? Salt sanitizes while you have a salt wash. It, it, it does an amazing work there. It does something else. It preserves. It would stop the decay of meat. If you wanted to preserve meat, what would you do? You'd, you'd brine it. You'd salt it, right? It would last because it stops decay. And that's an amazing thing. That, that's, what a gift. But salt does something else, which we all still enjoy, is it enhances that if you are cooking and, and, and you're using salt, it makes food taste better. And for those of you who have to be on a low-sodium diet, you know, we just hurt for you, <laughs> right? We, salt is so yummy. Now, you have to have other flavors as well. No one's just licking salt all the time, but salt has this ability to enhance what it's around. And the kingdom of God has these qualities, that God put us into this world not just for our own effect, not just to be salt blocks, but that we could be in this world and to have a sanitizing effect, to, to kill off the things that are destroying the soul of, of our world, to have this preserving effect, to, to stop the, the moral and social and spiritual decay of this world, and which we had seen over and over and over again throughout history. There is now finally to, to, to slow that down and also to enhance. Uh, that God's people, his kingdom was to be there to make the world a better place, a more enjoyable place. And the cool thing is that we are the salt of the earth. We get to do that here. Not that you get to be the salt of heaven. As heaven doesn't need an antiseptic. Right? Heaven doesn't need to be preserved. It's forever. Heaven doesn't need to be enhanced. It is everything. But we're the salt of the earth. That, that this is not a call to a kingdom that is just up there somewhere, pie in the sky, someday we'll get our reward. It's not a kingdom for out there next. It's a kingdom for here and now. And we're not just the salt of the earth. He goes on the very next thing. He says that we're the light of the world. Right? That's powerful too. Light is a unique substance. It's part of creation that we still don't understand. Is it a little particle? Is it a wavelength? Is it energy? Is it all of it? Is it none of it? We don't know, but we all see it. That's the point. 
It's an amazing gift. It is unique and unlike anything else, known and defined by its brilliance and illumination. It has amazing function. Isn't it great that God gave us light? We'd all be stubbing our toes, wondering what each other looked like. And, and we say that, that salt or light does amazing things. He even talks about it. The first one is it reveals itself, right? We talk about the city on a hill can't be hidden. That's what he said. That light always reveals itself. It's always there and revealing. But it also reveals the environment around it. Like you said, you put a lamp on a stand. Right? There's a reason people light lamps, not just to look at the lamp and go, ooh, that's pretty. Right? But so they can see what's happening everywhere else. And again, he says that we're the light, but, but we're not just the light of heaven. The light of the world. Uh, to bring an illumination, to, there's going to be something that we can't be hidden in this world. There's a glory or a brilliance or an illumination that comes off of the church. It's be a brilliant thing, and you're not going to be able to hide it. Just like you said, a city on a hill can't be hidden. It's not like it won't be hidden. It can't. But the other thing is that there's a point in that, the, that God's kingdom was going to illuminate ev- for everyone the reality of this world, what is real and what is not real, and, and how this this whole thing operates, and, and who God is. There's a, a way that, the, that God's kingdom will have that effect in culture. And so we see that we are the salt and the light. And that's my next slide. There you go. Right? And so who are the we? It's God's kingdom, right? That's the church. That's who we are. We are the kingdom of God. We're not just a little congregation that sits on a hill. We're not in a 501c3 we're not a religious organization. We're the kingdom of God, and we are part of that. We have a unique character and a unique function, something that the world desperately needs. It's a gift of God to the rest of the world. We are here to sanitize, to preserve, to enhance, and to enlighten. That is the, the evidence that is the character and the nature of the church. It's intrinsic to who we are. It's not what we attain to. It's who we are. And the cool thing is, is that this church, I don't know if you noticed this, but we are actually in this world. You didn't have to come in here and come to some transcendental trance in order to meet together. Woo, meeting in the spirit. No, we're here. And we have work to do here. And we have purpose here. And so we gather here, not just in the spirit, which is why we have physical churches, not just some ethereal church all over the world that meets throughout all of time. That exists. But we list in the world, you are here physically. And it's why it matters that we are here physically because God's church exists physically, powerfully in this world which so desperately needs salt and light. And we are the light of the world and we are the salt of the earth. But I don't know if you notice this. The world is dark and getting darker. And the world is corrupt and is becoming more rancid by the day. Why? How is it that we can be in this world and yet we can see what's happening in this world happen? Well, the first question I had to ask is this. Have we hidden our light? See, when the church began, it started in a very dark and depraved and disgusting place, didn't it? And the church began as tiny little salt and light and over the period of several centuries toppled all of the tyrants above it. It changed the course of, of human thought and understanding. There was a beauty that grew throughout the millennia until here recently. That, that the light of the gospel expanded and grew and apparently seemed unstoppable. It changed the course of, of all belief, all ethic, all, all philosophy was based on uh, truth 
it, it gave an anchor to, to humanity. It was an amazing thing. We saw uh, huge changes in the moral structure of, of people. And think about slavery. I know that in our world, we're like, well, it's so bad that we as, as a culture had slavery in it. Every culture had slavery in it from the very beginning. The question is, did we have slavery? Is who ended it? Christians. It should blow your mind that the fact that it wasn't the Muslim world that ended slavery. In fact, those are the ones who we got our slaves from. It wasn't the Indian world. It wasn't the Hindus that ended slavery. They still practice it today. It wasn't the animists down in Africa that ended slavery. They still have a supply of slaves. Where did slavery end? Through the growing and gnawing light of the gospel, through the salt of the earth, which eventually turned that around. Where did women begin to have dignity in society? What culture brought that up? It was the culture of God's kingdom that we even have the concept of equality of the race, of, of gender. We wouldn't even believe in that in a tiny sense if it wasn't for the gospel. The gospel has moved throughout millennia, destroying the brokenness and the depravity and the despair of humanity. It has done amazing work, and yet... Since the 1800s, we've begun to go slide back into darkness. We are not in a post-Christian world. Don't ever say that. We have slid back to a pre-Christian culture. That's where we are. How did that happen? How is it that the light and the salt was so productive, so effective for so long that we find it now seeming to fail? Is it that God's kingdom ran out of power? That God's truth no longer has the ability to be an antiseptic against sin, to enlighten us against darkness. See, what is the light? Light reflects reality. That's what it does. That's why we turn on the lights. See, if you want to see what's really going on in your house, maybe you're afraid at night and you hear a, a something a, a, a knocking around downstairs, and so you, you get up and you go down there. If you're the man, if you're the gal, and you're like, hope you don't die, right? And you go down, and what do you do? You turn on the light because you want to see what's there. If it's a squirrel or a mouse or a burglar, all bad things, you don't want to see those things, but you want to see what the problem is. Maybe it's a broken pipe, but you got to figure out what the problem is. You have to expose reality. Light doesn't always make things all hunky-dory beautiful. We turn on the lights to see what's there. If you don't want to see what's really going on, stick your head in the sand. Turn off the lights. Just imagine, no, everything is fine. The light exposes what's really going on. See, the light removes ambiguity. It shows us what's really there. And the light of the world, the light of God who shines through us does the same thing. But it does it spiritually and morally and ethically and culturally. And don't we live in an age that is spiritually and morally and culturally blind? Live with great ambiguity? Uh, we, we have debates over what marriage actually is. What gender really is. What is moral? We don't even agree on, on what is right and wrong any longer by any stretch of the imagination. We live in an Im ambiguous world. There is no light. And so people are walking around with all these false lights and these, these blinders on saying, I believe that this is what is right and what is true. And they keep stubbing their toe on reality and then not knowing why and blaming God for it. Where is the light? Matthew 5.15 says this. 
Neither do people light a lamp and put it under a bowl. Instead, they put it on a stand and it gives light to everyone in the house. So Jesus said, you're the light of the world. We have to position ourselves in the right place, in the right way. God will shine through us, but we can't hide ourselves. But I fear that we as a culture have, as a church, have become afraid of telling the truth because there's a consequence to it. Because we expose what's really out there and people don't want to see what's really out there. There really are boogeymen and monsters. It's called the devil and his dominion. And we don't like to see that. And we don't like to see the sin in our own heart. We don't like to see our own depravity. And when the church tells the truth, people say, well, I feel guilty. I hate that. I feel shame. I hate that. Well, you know what? I don't like, you know, feeling lousy. I mean, I had a toothache for a while, and it was awful. And, and, and it hurt. And I didn't enjoy that either. But the dentist said, you need a root canal. I hated that, too, because that's expensive. <laughs> but I was so glad I got the root canal. I was so glad I actually knew what I needed to do to fix it. Now, I wasn't happy that he told me that. But I was grateful. And our world needs a root canal. It needs some serious heart surgery. There's brokenness going on. But we're expecting pagans and politicians to rise up and reveal truth to everyone. Think about that for a second. We're expecting people who have no idea who Jesus is, who are not the light, to somehow shine truth, and we get mad at them that they don't. But the church sits silent as our children's minds are poisoned by dark things, as our neighbors live deep lives of, of horrible despair, and because we don't want to make them feel uncomfortable, we say nothing as their souls die. We hide our light. And we're silent because the world says, we don't want to hear the church being political. Well, get this, we're not political, but we kind of are because we're in the kingdom of God. And the thing is, is the kingdom of Satan has done a very smart thing is it's taken ethical things, parts of truth, and said, well, these are now political, so you can't talk about them. Well, guess what? We're talking about them. Truth matters. It matters that we keep our bodies pure. It does. It matters that we keep our minds pure. It matters that we speak what is true. It matters that we tell people and love what's really going on. It matters that we're done being bullied by the darkness that we cannot express truth. We have to do it in love, but we cannot be silent. We can't put the light under a bushel anymore. Our world is dying. They're dying. Will they reject the light? A lot will. Jesus warned us of that in the Beatitudes. Will some hate it and love darkness more than light? Absolutely. But how on earth can we possibly say that we love people, that we love our community, we love our family, we love our world if we just let them die in darkness when the light is in us? We could just, we could just trust God and, and, and be able to reveal truth. Well, the next verse, he goes in back 16, it says, In the same way, light your let your light shine before others. They may see your good deeds and glorify your Father in heaven. So Jesus talks about it's not just what we say as a church that matters. It's not just that we stand up in the midst of the public square or go to the school boards and, and, and live our, our faith publicly. 
But more important, it says what we do, how we live, is really what impacts the world. We have to let our light shine by good deeds. We have to believe truth and speak truth, but it had better be echoed out in what we do and say. Is it true that we're supposed to love our enemies? It's easy to say. Do we do it? Is it say in the word that we're supposed to care for those that are weak and poor and will never be able to pay us back? As though they were Jesus. If we believe that, what are we doing? How do we live it? Do we really believe that Jesus is the king of our life? That we don't do things for our convenience but for his pleasure? We can say that. But how is my life being submitted to him, following him? Is Jesus really our king? Or is he just a, a nice figurehead? Because he didn't come to be a figurehead. He became to be our king of all of our life. And everything we do and say and believe, this is his kingdom. And either I die to myself and I follow him or I have no part of him. Jesus makes it pretty clear. So how do we live? Are our good deeds, not just morally nice acts that the world applauds, but truly good deeds? Do we serve people in silence? Do we have generosity that pours out from us? Do we care in the midst of our poverty? Do we find ways to, to look at the needs of others, thinking about them more than we think about ourselves? Our faith needs to shine as much, if not more, than our words. But I'll tell you, the church has done that for centuries, and it changes everything. We have a long history and heritage of it. Next thing we're going to ask is, have we lost our saltiness? I think one of the reasons we hide the light is because we as a church have lost our saltiness. The saltiness is that characteristic of God's kingdoms, right? We're... We were supposed to be a preserver of truth, right? To an antiseptic against the lies of Satan, right? We were supposed to, to be able to, to, be able to uh, make this world an enhanced place. But instead, I fear that in the last couple hundred years, this blessed in the Western world, we have become more worldly than heavenly, haven't we? I mean, really, think about our own culture and even in the church, and I'd like you to compare our own current beliefs, our understanding of things like marriage, human sexuality, uh, even uh, like things like drunkenness and things like this, uh, uh, you know, our commitment to being part of the body of faith, all those types of things. Compare that to the apostles and the Christians of that age who would literally be executed and die in order to meet together, who would suffer execution being burned to death by speaking up and saying marriage is one man one woman we have to to do this that we can't be like the, the emperor's having all these homosexual things with all these children and it is bad and to stand up against that was uh, an offense of the state where the church was willing to die and gruesome deaths by saying there is no way other than jesus into heaven and christians were brutally murdered for that and yet in our church today we don't believe that we say things like well, they have their way, you have your way. Jesus is a way of heaven. No, he is the way. And that's not popular. And the fact that I have to get nervous saying that from the pulpit, and some of you are angry at me for saying that, shows us how lack of saltiness we are. 
The fact of the matter that says that, that, that every person is born sinful, that we have a brokenness in our spirit that makes us want to do things that are wrong, which is why we have to die to ourselves, every one of us fundamentally, and live a different way, find a new identity in Christ. Oh, it's easy to say until I say things like this, that, you know what? Some people are born with homosexual attraction. Some people are born with gender confusion. They are, and where hearts break for them. But they have to die to themselves, just like I have to die to myself because I would be a murderer if it wasn't for Jesus. And we have to find a new identity in Jesus. And there is nowhere in the kingdom of God where I find that there is an exception for us to live these debaucherous lives in opposition to his divine command. But the fact that I would say that and now be guilty of hate speech, and if I was in Europe or Canada, I would go to jail right now for saying those words. We have lost our saltiness, church. I am not ashamed of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And the last two weeks were horrible for me because I asked God to show me my depravity. I have to die to myself so much more than I ever thought I needed to. But a lot of it is I realized how much I had become worldly. I had let the culture of this world dictate to my heart what was right and wrong, not the king of glory. I began to say God's word, well, it's nice, but it's old-fashioned. No, it is eternal. Modern relativism has no place in the, in the kingdom of God. There are biblical absolutes, and we as a culture hate absolutes. We hate them. Oh, we hate them. I can see it in your faces. You all want to mob me. But I'm telling you, I want to mob me too. But the kingdom of God has biblical absolutes. There are men and there are women. There is, there is moral purity sexually and there is immoral debauchery sexually. There is no gray area, right? There is worship of the one true king and there is idolatry. There is no gray area. There are moral absolutes where God has given us and he is the king and it is our responsibility to stick with those. That is the salt because only God's truth, only God's way can be the antiseptic for the soul. Only God's truth can preserve society. And take a look at our world right now. Is it being preserved? Is it good for anybody? It's not going the right way. So in verse 13, Jesus says this, You are the salt of the earth, but if salt loses its saltiness, how can it be made salty again? It's no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled underfoot. This really hit me hard as I was studying this because I feel in many ways that we, and I would say we, I say me, had lost my saltiness. And I, and I would say to my king, did he say to me I'm worthless? But then I look in the world that I'm supposed to serve. What difference have I made for Jesus? What difference? The Christian church of Estes Park disappeared and all the other evangelical churches in Estes Park disappeared and all the other churches disappeared. What difference would there be in the culture of our community? That's hard. You know, there's a historical record of churches losing saltiness. Jesus even talks to one in the book of Revelation, verse uh, three, uh, 17. If you want to put that up on the screen, it says... Jesus says to this church, which is known as Laodicea, you say I am rich, I have acquired wealth, and do not need a thing. But you do not realize that you are wretched, pitiful, poor, blind, and naked. 
And that is exactly what I felt the Spirit was telling me the last couple of weeks. It was like going to the dentist and him saying, you need a root canal, dude. There is corruption in you. And I find that so much in our culture, the Western church, maybe this is why we, we don't see the revival we claim we want. But I want you to know that Jesus offers a solution even to this church. Look at verse 18, 19, the very next verse. He says, I counsel you to buy from me gold refined by the fire so you can become rich and white clothes to wear so you can cover your shameful nakedness and salve to put on your eyes so you can see. See, those whom I love, I rebuke and discipline. So be earnest and repent. Isn't it amazing that God doesn't come to this church and say, I just want to beat you with that candlestick? So there's, there's a solution to it. First is be humble. You have to recognize we don't feel blind, but I think in a lot of ways we are. I think we're blind in ways we don't even know. We've been so saturated by this culture, become so worldly, we can't even see it. And we're so worried that we're going to become like these crazy fundamentalists that just hate everybody. I don't want to do that. So we use that fear to let us drive us away from God. But no, I think we begin with saying, God, I want you. I want your kingdom to come and your will to be done in me on this earth as it is in heaven. To, to humble ourselves and to go to him to find what we need. That's where we find the purity of the white robes. That's where we find the value of the gold, right? Where we find value and purpose and richness in life. But then we also have to be repentant. That's what he says, to turn. That as a church, as the Western church, we need to wake up and to recognize the enemy has lulled us into a worldly slumber We've hidden our light and lost our saltiness and everything else falls apart. And God says, I love you. That's why I'm going to tell you the truth. So come to me. Repent and turn and get this, be restored. If you come, you get clothed again. You get the wealth, right? He, he, he cares for you. You can see again. You get salve for your eyes. Our God is a merciful and a just God. But the answer to a broken and saltless and a dark church is to repent in humility and let God restore us. Isn't that a lot better than trying to earn our way back? I sure love my God. So let's go back to those three keys, because this is important for us. The three keys of God's kingdom, the first one, if you show it, is God's kingdom is personal before it's political. I didn't come up here to, to give you false guilt, okay? The Western church objectively has hidden its light and has become lost its saltiness. There's no other way around it. We have definitely done that. Right? But remember that God's kingdom starts at the heart first. A and I'm not here to say that you are saltless and you've covered your light. Maybe you're not. And if, if that's the case, then don't feel any false guilt from me about saying there's something that you're not. What I would say is this. Let God do an evaluation of your heart. Right? Because we together are the church. This is not a sermon that we look at other people in judgment and say, I can't believe how bad that person is. And once they got their life together, the church would be fine. But you are the salt of the earth. You are the light of the world. This is a time for us to go to the Father this week and to let God do an evaluation of it. I had him do it with me, and it wasn't fun, but it's been good. I've had so many things where I didn't even know that I could turn from, and I'm so grateful that I could repent and turn because that means that, that there is hope, that there is goodness, that there is purity, there was that, that God does amazing things. But if you look at your own heart and your life and you recognize, no, I've been shining the gospel. Awesome. Continue to do that. 
that the church needs that desperately, that, that the, like, receive like, an enormous amount of, of gratitude on my behalf and for the church can keep it up. If you've maintained your saltiness, that you've really stayed away from this worldliness, that you've, there's a definite difference between you and the way the culture has been, and you've stayed firm with that. And, 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 well, that's awesome. Don't feel any false guilt from me saying that you've somehow become worldly. If, if not, that's great. Then hear this from your pastor who loves you very much. Stay firm in that and, and set an example. But if you have an evaluation of your spirit this week and the Holy Spirit shows you and you thought you were really salty and you were just shining light and he brings you conviction and there are areas in your life you've been weak and afraid and ashamed of the gospel and you have become worldly and you have just excused his ways and done other things, turn. Use this as a wonderful opportunity. This is what I've done those last couple weeks. It's been painful like a root canal, but it's been wonderful. It's been the most uh, enormously great thing. My ability to love the lost has expanded in an enormous way. I thought I was being so tolerant, but in being tolerant, I just became bitter. But God has given me a new kind of love for those who don't know him. And it's come by actually standing on what he says and believing it to be true. I, I, I invite you to let God do this. It's going to be personal first. Let God get personal with you. The second thing is that God's kingdom requires faith and faithfulness. There are things that I'm wrestling with God right now. I'm not much different than the patriarch where they got to wrestle with God too. But he says some things in his word that make me really uncomfortable and I don't like. And I preach about some of them, even now. And I don't understand how God can say some things are right or wrong because it's so different than everything I grew up in. It's so different than my culture. And I'm wrestling with God. no. He's going to win. I know when I disagree with God who's right. But I still need to wrestle. But as I do, I submit myself to his rule. See, I'm not going to follow Jesus once I agree with Jesus because then I'm not really following Jesus. I'm following me and then doing what Jesus asks when it's convenient. No, I'm going to follow him. It requires faith and faithfulness. I'm trusting that he actually knows more than me and it blows my mind that God somehow is a better draw on what is actually moral than I do. Because my heart keeps telling me this is what is right, so it must be right. How arrogant of me. You're going to have to come to God and there are going to be areas where you're going to have to die to yourself. I said things today that probably really offended you. Well, guess what? This whole last two weeks, I was deeply offended by the Holy Spirit too. Let his word offend you. And then trust him. As you wrestle it out, how are you going to live this out? But just be obedient. Trust him and obey. But here's the third thing. It is worth it. See, we're not going to find revival. We're not going to be salt and light in this community. We're not going to see the valley saturated with the gospel until at first we let the salt of God's word and the light of God's word do its work in us. And until we really recognize and say we are going to be part of God's kingdom, his worthy totalitarian state. He has the right to tell us what to believe. He has the right to tell us how to act. He has the right to set our ethics and our morals. It doesn't matter what we believe about them or how we feel about them. He is king. But here's the cool thing. He's not like all the other totalitarians who stand on the crushed bones of all the people that they are supposed to lead. He gives us life and love and purpose and meaning and joy and hope and power. He gives us all the things the heart longs for and more, and so he is a king that is worth it. 
it is worthwhile. So here are the two requirements for the revolution. The first one is up there. We've got to be salty. We've got to stay salty, church. Stay salty. And I love it because my, my son tells me that means for like the, the youth right now, or like being salty means you kind of have an attitude or something. We've got to have an attitude. There is a king. And he's worthy. And he's coming back. Stay with him. Stay away from worldliness. The second thing we've got to do is that we've got to shine the truth. Don't be ashamed of it. It is not your truth. It is not my truth. I wouldn't have come up with the things that God came up with. I would not have written the Bible the way it is written. It would be a very, very different book, and there would be far less hope in it. Shine God's truth. Tell the truth. Live the truth. If you believe it, act it out. And the ways that we don't, turn and repent. <laughs> Let God, in humility, change us, all right? So with that, we go to our anchor verse, because you thought I forgot about this today, but I didn't. This is this anchor verse for all of it, how Jesus culminates the whole thing. It says, therefore, everyone who hears these words of mine and puts them into practice is like a wise man who built his house on the rock. Build our house on the rock, church. You hear these things? Practice it. As we practice it, there is power and there is stability. And this is the kind of church that I want to be a part of, right? So on your connection card, how are you going to do that? Some next steps for you. The first one up there is I'm going to encourage you to, to uh, read James, uh, the the whole book of James, which is just a little letter written by Jesus' brother, James. Uh, and if you want to talk about a guy who was salty and shined the light, here's a book for you. It's challenging. It was one that kicked me around a, a little bit the last couple weeks. Uh, I encourage you to, to go into it, but there's also great mercy in the book of James. There's great purpose in it. And one of the things I love about the book of James is there's this call to us to not be double-minded, right? To purify our hearts and to be set on just the kingdom of God. But it's set in, uh, with great context and with great help. I know that you're going to find some help in this book, so read it this week. The next thing, why don't you memorize Matthew, the 724. That's our, our anchor verse. Go back into it because if we're going to really be God's kingdom, we need to do what God says, right? So that, and in order to do that, we need the encouragements of God's kingdom, and actually it's worth it, right? It's like building our house on the rock. Third thing I'm going to ask us to do this week as a connection point is to repent and restore. If the Holy Spirit, ask the Holy Spirit to do that inventory of your spirit, of your heart. Ask Him to do it, like really. And, and he'll, he'll do it, like He did it for me. And it was, it was a little bit tough, but it was wonderful. But here's the best part. God doesn't bring us conviction so that He can condemn us. He brings us the conviction so He can redeem us, so that we could turn and actually live lives that bring life, not death. So I challenge you, it's a bold step, it's a step of faith, but to expose yourself to God and to say, Lord, let it be personal before I expect it to get out there. I want your kingdom to come in my own heart. Bring your conviction into me, change me, and let God restore you because he will do that. He never just breaks people down. He'll, he'll allow the, the brokenness to get out of you. He'll take that out, but, but then he builds you stronger and better than you ever could have imagined as we repent and we turn to him and we trust him we obey him it's an amazing thing so make that commitment why continue to to live a, a saltless dark life let god do his work the last thing i'm challenged to do is this is, is to stay salty and shine the truth it's a commitment to say you know we don't just hear god's word we want to be practitioners of it this is what jesus says part of the kingdom i'm making a commitment maybe for you that's this very day to say, you know what, whatever it is, I don't, if I'm the only one in this whole Estes Valley that does this, I'm going to be part of God's kingdom, and I'm going to trust him, and I'm going to keep his way. I'm going to keep the culture of the kingdom, not my own culture, and I'm going to shine the truth of God, and I'm going to trust that he's going to do what he needs to do with it. Make that personal commitment. 
That's faith and faithfulness practiced. And I'll tell you, brothers and sisters, there's a reward for it, and it is worth it. So I encourage you, make that commitment today. Maybe there's something else that you need to do. Maybe it's you're here this morning, and you are not a follower of Jesus. It's not the best evangelical message for, for evangelism. But I'll tell you this, God loves you more than you could ever possibly imagine, more than you love yourself. And he came to put his kingdom in this world not so that he could just rule over you, but he could save you because right now you are a slave to sin and to yourself. There is no purpose or hope in, in the life that we have apart from him. And he invites us to a kingdom that gives us hope and purpose. And he actually loves you. He died on a cross so that you wouldn't have to die. He, he separated himself from the Father that you would never have to be separated from God. He gives us meaning in this life and goalposts to live by. If you do not know him, you're not his follower of, of Jesus. He says that we can be saved by God's grace through our faith in Christ Jesus as our Lord and Savior. We express that faith by believing and confessing, repenting through our baptism, by being part of a, a healthy church as we grow up in that. Faith is a, is a way of life, and it's an amazing thing. If you need to take that first step, I encourage you, come talk with me. After the message, I would love to be able to share how, how to do that and help you take those steps of faith. But for everybody else here, we also need to take steps of faith, don't we? Well, I gave you those connection cards. So let me know what that is so I can pray for you this week. And in a moment, we're going to take our offering. I encourage you to drop those offerings in the offering basket as it's passed, right? And then after that, I'm going to pray, and then I'm going to do that. And then I encourage you to stick around. We're going to be having a, a very special memorial uh, lunch and light, light bites thing between services uh, for our dear and uh, already she's at home, our sister Keely. So I encourage you to stay for that. So let's, let's pray. Father God, thank you. Thank you that you shine light into our lives, Lord. And sometimes it shows some pretty embarrassing things and stuff we don't want to see, but I'm glad that we can see it. Lord, and that you don't reject us because of the sin. You already saw it. And you're not ashamed of us. And you're not ashamed to call us your children. But you want us to be worthy of, of the work that you've built us for. And Father, I would say as a culture, I know that the church here in the West for a while has, has lost its saltiness. And we've uh, been afraid to shine the light. We've hidden it when, when the world needs it so badly. So Father, I pray that today that you would help us regain some of that saltiness. That you'd help us to begin to boldly shine that light a little bit better. Father, I pray against the enemy and his offense that he's trying to make us mad at each other at this or at you or discourage us. Tell us we're not worthy. We don't shine our own light. We shine yours. And Father, that we have the flavor of Christ. So Father, I pray that you would give us the courage to turn to you, Father, and to, to stay solid with you. That in this, Lord, that in this church, Father, we would be salt and light, that we would see your kingdom come in this community, in our own hearts, but also in Estes Park in a way that would blow our minds. Father, use that. Use our commitments, our tithes, our offerings, all of that. Help build your kingdom. You truly, truly are worthy. We pray this in the name of our King Jesus.